You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient welcoming you back to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with the amazing canoe driving, canoodling Abby Eblen <laughs> and the weed whacking woman of the year, Susan Hudson. <laughs> Hello. Um, Dr. Abby Eblen is from the Texas... No, Dr. Abby Eblen is not from Texas Fertility <laughs> Center. Do not go to Texas looking for Abby because you will not find her in Texas. You I've will, been there however, before, but I've never worked there before. <laughs> you will, however, find her in Tennessee. Which they both start with a T-E, so that's where I'm going to blame it on. There you go. Um, at the... Uh, Tennessee Fertility Center. Um, and Nashville. He still messed Nashville? it up. Nashville Fertility still Center. still messed it up? Oh, man. Happy Sunday recording Boy, session. this is yeah. like... We're like... I don't between know. The, we've got like a curse or something. Between the technology this afternoon and the where where is everyone from? Um, and then we have Dr. <laughs> Susan Hudson from the Texas Fertility Center. Unlike Dr. Abby, Abby Eblen of the Nashville Fertility Center... <laughs> Um, and I am, of course, Dr. Carrie Beanian of the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. So anyway, it has been kind of an outdoorsy weekend for all three of us. Um, Abby was out canoeing all weekend with the Boy Scouts. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. My daughter's a Boy Scout and we were out canoeing. Wait, wait, wait. Your daughter is a Boy Scout? Yeah, she's uh, she joined Boy Scouts about a year and a half ago when they now first let girls... Now it's called Scouting. Now it's it you're right. It's BSA it scout. Scouting. That's right. We have we have scouts at our house too. So now that's right. Scouting. Yeah, I didn't realize that they took off the gender affiliation because all of the scouts that I know here in Vegas are still very Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, and ne'er the twain shall meet. Nope. About well, a year and a half ago, Girl Scouts are still Girl Scouts, but Boy yeah. Scouts became scouts. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and so um, the 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 thing now too is girls can achieve the the, the rank of eagle. So um, that's kind of what the goal is. And um, my daughter's life, which is one rank away, so she nice. has to start working on her eagle project. But anyway, we were canoeing this weekend, and um, it was really very nice and very pretty this weekend. Is it still really super hot and humid? Nice. And no, actually, the humidity in Tennessee has really decreased a lot. And in fact, actually, when we stopped to eat lunch, it was so cold we built a fire because it was pretty chilly. Actually, it was it was probably about seventy and, and a little bit overcast. So without sun, it was kind of cold. And and I didn't take a spill, but a couple of people took spills. So um, <laughs> so it turned out they were wet and cold. So we had built a fire. Very nice. And Susan, you were, I guess that was kind of a misnomer. You said that you sat on your patio. You didn't actually I, weed whack because the wind was... I, I did try poisoning my weeds, but the wind was blowing too much that I was like getting weed poison on me. And I figured that was a really bad idea. So I decided to sit on my patio for a little bit and enjoy it. And in Texas, it has gotten so much nicer, really like in the last two weeks. You, know, you just sit outside and it's like feel the breeze and see the trees and all that kind of good stuff. And we don't have fires going on around us like you have, yeah. Carrie. Yeah. What's it, what's it like in Las Vegas? So Las Vegas itself, I mean, it's it's still hot here, but it's it's cooled down into the 90s, um, <laughs> at least kind of where, where 
I am because I live on the outskirts of town. If you're if you're in the middle of town, it's still in the high 90s, low 100s. Um, but with the California fires all around us, it is it's pretty smoky here. And some days are better than others. Like yesterday morning, I walked into our bathroom and our um, our fan was going, and I could smell that it was pulling in air from the outside, and I could smell the smoke. Um, when I look out over our into our backyard and, and what looks out over that, I can I can see the haze. It, we haven't had a truly clear day in quite some time because oh, wow. all those fires are are blowing straight into Nevada. So um, so yeah, it's it's you know apocalyptic twenty twenty. Twenty twenty is everything the year doesn't to be, just get it together to do. So um, it's it's continuing, but I'm hoping that eventually everybody's going to start getting some rain in the fall here, and we'll we'll be able to put the fires down, clear out the air quality, and improve. But right now, it's it's still pretty hazy. I had listened to a, I don't know if it was NPR broadcast or something like that about kind of what, why there are so many of these forest fires. And I, what I heard was, and I I don't know how much background there is on this, but what I heard was over the 20th century, when like the national forestry service came into being that we were so proactive at kind of squelching the small fires that the fires that should have naturally happened to kind of help have like this natural cleaning process for our wooded areas Mm -hmm. didn't happen. And essentially we've had almost a century of kind of building up this environment that like now that that we have this environment. That's why we end up having all these fires and we don't have a good plan of, you know, they can't, you know, manually clear as efficiently as if we would have let those fires happen. I just, you know, that's just so sad that I think there's a reasonable possibility that in our, in our, you know, eagerness to do something good that we may have created something, you know, a century later that could have not been so good. Yeah, I heard somebody say, and I don't know how true this is is either because I'm certainly not a climate change expert, but they said that just overall the humidity is decreasing and with warmer climates, decreased humidity just causes more drying of the vegetation and it's just more likely that just some simple spark can set off a big wildfire too. So, you know, it sounds like it's kind of a perfect storm of a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, I think 2020 and a lot of um, setups is looking at how humans are impacting their world. And so when you look at the thought of, okay, coronavirus may be coming from a um, bat, and I don't know if that's still the going theory. In all the other things to investigate, I haven't followed that one as much, but... (laughs) If you look at, at... If anybody would know, Carrie, it would be you, I think. <laughs> All the esoteric facts. Yes, the esoteric um, facts. If, if you start looking at, okay, people are encroaching on natural environments, and so you start seeing zoonotic diseases or the, the animal-carried diseases um, making the jump to humans more easily, which that jump happens 
not frequently, but frequently enough that it's only a matter of time before it hits a serious one in the same way that HIV was serious, coronavirus is Mm -hmm. a serious one. You also see um, significant overcrowding, particularly we're seeing it right now in the Pacific Northwest in California, where all those controlled burns that used to happen either by the native peoples or by just pure lightning strikes that would happen, they'd burn out. And when you look at those beautiful redwood pictures, you can see those trees are meant to sustain low burns. They are huge. They're they're thick bark. They're well insulated. You can see that they are meant to... um, They're meant to withstand some of these really huge fires. But when you get to this level of fire where they are stopped prematurely, they are not allowed to burn, they burn really hot, they sterilize the Mm. soil, they burn harder, longer, faster, and they go higher, they are more likely to damage some of uh, these forests. It's, it's It's a big lesson in how humans impact our environment and how real climate change is. And the impact on the humidity, the impact on the drying of the underbrush, the impact of not allowing nature to just do what it does. Take care of itself. Take care of itself. It it did a really good job for, you know, lots and lots and lots of years before we started messing with it. So maybe we should take some words of advice. Well, kind of uh, on that note of words of advice, we have a question from our one of our listeners, what is the question this week, Abby? So the question this week is, does Clomid make a woman produce more eggs? What happens if your egg supply prematurely diminishes and you want children? And are there options for conceiving without a donor? So those are a lot of, a lot of good, interesting questions. So why don't we start out with, does Clomid make a woman produce more eggs, Carrie? So that, I think that goes back to optimizing what you got. Um, it does not make a woman produce more eggs than what she has. It may help her to produce more eggs in that group of eggs and what is available. So if you go back to thinking about the physiology of a normal cycle, she's got a group of eggs that are in storage. Those are unreachable, unattainable to all of us, to her, to to the physicians, to everybody. Those come out on the body's own sweet time. Um, When they do come out, typically at the beginning of each menstrual cycle is when we're looking at them and able to see them clearly. That subgroup, your antral follicle count, is what we're able to act on. And that's what your brain hormones, the FSH in particular, act upon. And that's what Clomid acts on. So if you are in an unmedicated, just completely natural cycle, typically just one appears. When you have uh, one is supported and grows more, when you have a Clomid cycle, we can support more than one to grow. But if you only have one egg that's coming out of storage at a time, Clomid is not going to change that. It's just going to be a continuation of one egg. And so if you have a group of 20 eggs, instead of making one grow, we can make two or maybe three grow. I always tell people I don't want more than that because I only want a baby, not a basketball team. But, um, but it's not really going to encourage more than what is available. We can't make something out of nothing. So what you're saying is if you take fertility drugs, we're not going to really decrease the overall egg number, right? Correct. Those eggs that that were not being used, those were destined to die anyway. So we're either going to use what was going to get thrown away or 
or it's just going to get thrown away. So Susan, what happens if your egg supply diminishes? Um, Do you have options without using a donor? So some of it depends on how significant that diminished ovarian reserve is. Now, um, there are oftentimes we can, you know, as we do in a lot of things to maximize your fertility, um, there we can use medicines like Clomid or Letrozole or injectable medications to kind of oot your ovaries along to do what they need to do. And, and, and oftentimes we're able to achieve pregnancy. Sometimes we recommend some supplements like CoQ10 or DHEA to um, help. Um, but unfortunately, we don't make any new eggs. We're born with all the eggs we're ever going to get. Um, when little um, baby girls are in their mama's tummies, they have about 3 million eggs. By the time they're born, they're down to about a million. By the time they go through puberty, they go through, uh, they have about 300,000. Most women ovulate or release about 450 in a lifetime. And the rest of them undergo something called a treasure, or program cell death. They just kind of disappear. And so we know in some people, the rate at which they disappear increases without a good reason. Um, we sometimes see this in people with autoimmune disease, people who are um, smokers, people who have undergone um, medical treatments like chemotherapy. And so, but there, are, but I, I think the important thing to know is in a lot of cases, there are things that we can do to help you achieve your fertility, even if you have diminished ovarian reserve. But there are limits to what we can do. And, and you know, um, having a, a good conversation with your doctor and knowing um, at, at what point do, do we usually need to look at donor. And, and sometimes people who maybe have a high FSH or low AMH, but maybe young, maybe at a better chance to conceive than somebody who is maybe those exact same numbers, but at an older age. So it's when we put all those factors together and, and like I said, having that, that conversation with your doctor is really going to be able to figure out in your particular situation, what's going to be the best idea. Um, you know, if we have somebody who has severe diminished ovarian reserve and you're looking at having, um, maybe a severe male problem, you know, um, sometimes donor is the best thing, but again, donor is the right thing for some people and not the right thing for others. And, and you really need to help the, have a, have a good team behind you to help figure out what's going to be the best decision for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess the bottom line is we can never say never. And the more challenges you have, kind of like Susan mentioned, the more difficult it's going to be to negotiate through all the pathways of getting pregnant if you have a lot of other challenges. So yeah, I think talking to your doctor to talk about all those things is really kind of the most um, important thing. All right. So our topic of the day today is going to be Mullerian anomalies. And that's kind of a broad topic. And it's one of my favorites because it falls in the esoteric uh, category. And so clearly, I love it. Um, But Mullerian anomalies are are a lot of the abnormalities in anatomy that can pose challenges to women who are trying to conceive. And they fall into a lot of uh, or multiple different categories. And so today we're just going to focus on the Mullerian anomalies that, um, that affect the uterus because there's ones that affect the uterus and there's ones that affect the vagina. So we're going to focus on the uterine ones. And Susan, what's the, why are they called Mullerian anomalies? Like what, um, 
what, where did that name come from first? So people don't think we're crazy and we're talking about animal husbandry with mules. <laughs> and why are you calling me a mule? And I'm stubborn, but that's a little over the top, don't you think? And so where did Mularian come from? So um, I actually don't know specifically the person it was named after, but to give no, no, our I'm listeners... not asking that. Just as a general, okay. So in medicine, historically, there were lots of things that were named after famous people who discovered something about that specific thing. Okay? Yeah, I'd have to really dust off the cobwebs to remember the name of the person. I, I think Carrie's asking an easier question than right, that. Right, right. Yes, you're and taking so this to like, a much way too seriously. Yeah, yeah so, that I'm looking for. When, when um, in science, when we um, were naming these things after people, so kind of people are familiar with syndromes like Down syndrome or Turner syndrome, these are Mullerian anomalies. And so this was probably um, as Mullerian is the little U, has the little U with the umlauts. It was probably named after some German dude. <laughs> Susan, you are taking this way more. I was just trying to, sorry, I should use that better. Of like, so how about embryology? Let's ask about embryology. Yeah, like what's Do you the want embryology? How you, get these? you want to get how these things happen? Yeah, uh, I can do a lot yeah. easier. Yeah, like I'm not, I, I'm not asking the, I know I, I come up with a lot of esoteric facts, you did. but that's not, that is in no way what I was going for at all. I was thinking like, <laughs> why do we call them that? And like, what's the system that we're basing it off right. of? <laughs> so, so there's some tubes and they're called Mullerian tubes. Right. Take and it away, Abby. So, <laughs> or Susan or both. <laughs> go, Susan. So the way that I typically explain this is when, when little girls were forming in their mama's tummies, their uterus started off as two pieces. Those two pieces had to come together, fuse, and then the inside had to dissolve. Do those it's pieces kind of, have a name? Do those pieces have a name? Well, they have a name, but they really don't <laughs> matter in the grand scheme of things. But, but aren't they called Mullerian tubes? They are Mullerian tubes. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, but they that that process happens, and it's a complicated process. So it doesn't always happen the way that we expect it to. And when all those things are happening, things can mess up at any point in time. And so that's why there are variations of what we can actually see in the uterus. Interestingly enough. Um, if you have significant abnormalities with your uterus, you should also have your kidneys checked out and the tubes that go towards from the kidneys to the bladder because all of those things are forming kind of at the same time. And so if you have abnormalities in one, it's good to figure out if you might have abnormalities in the other. Okay. And I would just add too that the the more the tubes are fused, the more normal your structures are and the less they're fused, I guess the less normal they are. And in fact, some patients can even have two of everything, two vaginas, two cervices, and two uteruses, each with an individual tube because they have a completely separated system all the way down. So it depends on how much is fused. Um, that determines kind of what your structures are and, and sometimes can correlate with pregnancy outcomes. And yes, you can theoretically have a pregnancy in each uterus at the same time that are due at... Uh, 
different, but same times. Like they're not going to be based on the the hormonal control. They're not going to be that different in timing, but they can be off by a little bit. Um, and so, yes, you can theoretically have twins in your two separate uteri at the same time. That would be and, a nightmare. <laughs> and occasionally I could say, and my partner just had a patient like this and uh, it, I had, was reminded of a patient that I had like this too. Occasionally you can have two uteruses one uterus connects to your cervix and your vagina and the other uterus does not. So mm-hmm. a non-communicating portion or horn of your uterus. So, so why don't we kind of talk about kind of the different branches of what like subsets of uterine anomalies. So to give, a, to give our listeners kind of a, a different way to think about the anatomy so that what we are describing makes a little bit different it makes sense for those of you who think about things in terms of kitchen objects because we ruin re- meals on a regular basis. Well, let's 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 alter some I regular. I can't. I can't wait to see where you're going with this kitchen objects. What does kitchen that mean exactly? Okay, so think about two empty paper towel rolls. So you've got the two cardboard tubes, and they're sitting right next to each other, long ways. Okay, so if theoretically you could put them right next to each other and have one really long tube that you're looking through. So you've got these two long tubes and eventually what they're going to do is they're going to rotate and they're going to come right next to each other so that you've got these two long tubes that are paired right next to each other. So that if you turned them, they would end up looking like binoculars. You could put one eye down each one and you could look down each one. So you've got these two tubes right next to each other. Now, that's one place where Mullerian anomalies or abnormalities happen because these two tubes come together, but not completely. And so the the two, um, two paper towel rolls, they start to come together, but instead of totally touching each other all the way, side to side, all the way along, the bottoms touch, but the tops don't. Another way you can think about it is that once those in normal anatomy, what happens is those two tubes come all the way together. They touch themselves. They touch all the way along. And then imagine they magically get glued together. So those two tubes are sitting right next to each other. And then you take them and they're together long ways and you take scissors and you just cut right up. So instead of having two separate tubes, you now have one tube with one big hole. Does that kind of make sense? So that yeah, I like I like that. That's a good analogy. So you've they, got fu- it. they essentially fuse so together. Fuse together. Let, let's back up though. The first one that you just <laughs> described, okay, with the two tubes coming together at the bottom mm-hmm. and separate at the top, would otherwise be known as a uterine What's didelphus. Is what you're asking for? Uterine didelphus. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, you, that, so wait, just to clarify, because I heard that wrong. Just to clarify, you're saying if the two tubes completely never fuse together, that's when you have a didelphic uterus, correct? That's where you have a didelphus, where okay. the two tubes are sitting right next to each other. They are perfect neighbors, but there is no connection, no communication between the two of them. Now, let's say you put those two tubes together and you start to cut them, but then you drop your scissors and you go off to play in your garden and you forget about your project completely. So you've got the the bottom of the tubes are together. Communicate. 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 Fused at the bottom. And they're fused. But the two tops are not communicating. So this would be a... 
Bicornuate uterus. Bicornuate uterus. And so you've got the two uterine cornua or the two uterine horns, the two uterine tubes that are still separate. They should be fused together, but the signals didn't quite make it that far. So the bottom part is open and and talking and formed the way that it should, but the top part is not and has two separate ones. Okay. And so what's the next step? So, Or the next kind, I should say. So the next kind is you have the two tubes that have fully fused together. They are fully glued together. And you start to have the um, the scissors that are coming up and they have start to cut. But again, they have forgotten to, to finish cutting and the person's walked away. And so the tubes are fused together, but you still have a separation traveling down the middle. And so this is more of a septum. And the septum out of all of them is that is probably my personal favorite, mostly because it's the most gratifying to fix. <laughs> and surgically, you can go in and you can see it, and then you can take your your whatever your surgical device of choices, whether it's a resector, morselator, scissors, what have you, and you just clip right through it, and you can take it out, and you can. At that point, you now have what is a normal looking uterus. Um, and so you have a, a really beautiful looking uterus and, and functions very much like a normal uterus. So then what's an arcuate uterus then? And, and would little, you be gra- little septum. Would you be gratified with that kind of surgery too, Carrie? No, I would be <laughs> leaving stains in my pants if I thought I was doing a septum and I found <laughs> out I was doing an arcuate instead. Because when you're looking at that, the difference is... So an arcuate is... The difference between an arcuate and a septum is that both of them have that little heart shape when you're looking at the inside of the uterus. The difference is the outside of the uterus. So with an arcuate, the outside of the uterus is also heart-shaped. And it's very romantic. It's not at all romantic when you're doing surgery on it. Um, A septum, on the other hand, looks like a normal uterus on the outside. So with a septum, if you cut away at that inner tissue that shouldn't be there and you take it out, you are left with a normal uterus. On an arcuate, if you cut that tissue away, imagine trying to cut a Valentine's heart and you're cutting the, the... I always think of it as the cleavage part of the heart. Forgive me, I'm from Vegas. A lot deals with those <laughs> around here. But the cleavage part of the heart, if you cut that away and you go too far, you're going to end up looking through and through. And in the case of surgical anatomy, that means you are looking straight through into the abdominal cavity. And that is not a good feeling as a surgeon when you are not anticipating looking at that. Well, and I think the other point, couple of points I wanted to make, with an arcuate uterus, clinically, it's really just not significant. It, we, we don't think mm-hmm. it negatively impacts fertility. With the other types, you know, there's certain certain questions and, and there is some concern that it can affect your fertility. But with an arcuate uterus, it's just not clinically significant. So there's no reason to try and even fix that. I think the other thing that I always like to get across to patients when I see them is there's not a point where I say, okay, this is an arcuate uterus. This is definitely a septate uterus. This is definitely... You know, there's It's shades of gray and it's really hard to know from a clinical perspective 
sometimes if you're dealing with a septate uterus or even an arcuate uterus or a bicorneate uterus, and so sometimes surgically, you just have to go in to kind of figure that out. Now, sometimes you can get an MRI and that will help you discern, but really it kind of boils down to sometimes clinically, you just have to do surgery and really be prepared to repair a septum if it's there. And, you know, if, and also be prepared if it's an arcuate uterus and you don't think you're going to help surgically, then not to do anything other than just to look basically. So a couple things for our listeners to understand is that currently in 2020, most people do not surgically repair bicornuate uteruses anymore. Okay. Um, years ago, they did these surgeries. They were big surgeries. I've like done big- one of them before when I was a fellow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we, and- had, we helped that person or not, but we did. And so, you know, when, when you're looking at somebody with a bicornuate uterus, usually we don't surgically correct that um, for a number of reasons. Um, however, with a septate uterus, we usually do correct that. And it's usually a, a pretty easy surgery um, from, from the recovery standpoint. Um, you know, it, some of that's going to depend if the surgery is done purely hysteroscopically versus needing to have a laparoscopy at the same time. But we can have a pretty significant change in success rates by taking care of that septum. Now, septums tend to be... Hang on there, Susan. What's What do you say, or what kind of success rate do you say? Is it miscarriage in the first trimester, miscarriage in the second trimester? I mean, I think the the biggest chances of success, and some of it's going to depend on how big your septum is. So what, what I was about to say is the septum tends to be fibrous. So it doesn't have the same healthy blood supply as the rest of the muscle of the uterus. So we definitely are going to have it you know, improvement on potentially implantation rates and decreasing first trimester miscarriages. Now, if you have a large um, septum, you know, and you end up having kind of your placenta ends up on that septum and it doesn't have the same blood supply, then, you know, potentially decreasing complications that can happen in the second and third trimesters. Um, but I think most people don't have those huge septums. You know, I mean, we all do those huge septum surgeries, but that's not the majority of, of septums that we operate on. Most septums are just kind of little, small, probably I would say to the first little knuckle of your finger, um, maybe the second. The, every so often you'll get one that is a full finger's length that stretches the full length of the uterus that you know, okay, this is definitely going to cause an impact on pregnancy. Either it's going to increase her risk of pregnancy loss or she's going to have a miscarriage because of it or she's going to have a premature delivery. But I would say most septums are much smaller and Mm -hmm. we take them out when we see them because it's definitely indicated if you're going to that much trouble to do fertility treatment, whatever it may be, to get pregnant, and somebody's in there looking surgically, it is worth it to take it out. However, some of them have a greater impact than others. Yeah, and I, I digress, or I, I won't say I disagree, but I don't always just the minute I see one, definitely take it out because, you know, it it's, tends to be linked more to second trimester losses. Um, I think, you know, if I'm certainly if I'm in there and I see a septum, I would take it out. Um, if somebody's never had proven fertility, you know, occasionally I'll get patients that'll be sent to me and say, you know, they'll say, well, somebody found a septum and they want me to take it out. What do you think? And, you know, I think you have to balance the risk and the benefits. And 
the risks are you could operate on somebody and you could cause scarring in the uterine cavity when otherwise it might be, you know, you might not have a problem with pregnancy. And so, you know, I've had a few patients over the years that have done fine with septums that just didn't want to have them taken out. Um, so I don't jump immediately to take a septum out, but I certainly um, will look um, certainly with an MRI and occasionally, you know, we'll go to surgery and, and, you know, kind of make the call at the time of surgery. I'm going to pick on our radiology um, colleagues for just a moment since you mentioned MRI. I, I personally am not a fan of MRI when it comes to trying to figure out if something's a septum versus a bicornuate uterus, etc. cetera. Um, and that's because I've had years of getting MRI reports um, that are like septum versus bicornuate uterus or um, muscular septum, things that just don't, it, you know, it just doesn't add up. Um, also, you know, if any of our patients have HSGs that are um, being called, oh, you have a septum or you have a bicornuate uterus, um, realize that an HSG is really looking at the inside of the uterus. And like Carrie mentioned just a little bit ago, that the outside of the uterus is just as important in figuring out what type of anomaly you may have and whether it should be surgically resected or not. So I'm a big fan of looking with 2D and 3D ultrasound um, to help me figure out if I am, you know, if it's a really big septum or I'm unsure, then I'll typically do those with laparoscopy. So I know for sure um, with direct visualization what the, the surface of the uterus looks like. Um, if I feel pretty confident in my 3D ultrasound or even sometimes my 2D ultrasound, um, you know, oftentimes I'll resect those just hysteroscopically through the uterus instead of having to have an abdominal incision. I will say with my MRI, I have the advantage of having a radiologist who I typically, I'll have him walk me through it and tell me what he sees, or I'll go there and we'll look at the pictures together to really figure out kind of what he's really seeing. Because you're right, I think a lot of times the radiologists confuse septate versus bicornuate. And I think they don't realize that one is a potential surgical candidate for us and the other one is not. And so it's a huge I think decision making it, factor. I mean, it's like, Heart attack, not a heart attack. <laughs> so, I mean, I think for our listeners out there, I don't think it matters what modality somebody uses as long as they really know what that modality is telling them. So if it's an MRI or a, or a, or a 3D ultrasound or whatever, just I think it's important to make sure that the physician that you're seeing understands that you can't just read the words on the page. You have to really kind of look at it yourself or um, have a radiologist who understands you know, the difference between the two, since it does make a big difference in terms of what we recommend for the patient. Excellent. And didelphus, when you've got the the truly duplicated set of everything, is there anything like, how do you guys counsel your patients? I typically would counsel them the same way. Uh, actually, there's some, a big thing we haven't talked about. So we haven't talked about a unicorn uterus. Um, oh, yeah. And so... What a unicornate uterus is, is essentially you have half of a uterus. So you have one of those uterine horns, you have one fallopian tube, um, and the other half didn't form correctly. So I would counsel a truly bicornuate uterus very similarly that I would to my unicornate uterus that um, usually getting pregnant isn't as big of a deal. It usually isn't first trimester stuff as much as I'd be concerned about, say, a septum. 
but much more increased risk of things like preterm labor, preterm delivery, need for C-section because the baby may not be in the right position to deliver. Um, that those tend to be the, the biggest risks involved with those type of anomalies. And a didelphic uterus would be in that same category. So with exactly. bicornuate and unicornuate. The other thing too with the unicornuate uh, uterus, again, make sure somebody looks at you. So if they make the diagnosis based on the radiology procedure and HSG, make sure someone also looks at your uterus with an ultrasound. Uh, because again, I've had a couple of patients like this and my partner just had one recently where the HSG said a unicornate uterus. And then when we looked with ultrasound, we were we were able to actually see a non-communicating uterus on the other side. So that's important to know too, if you have that unique version of, of a uterine anomaly. So Abby, can you kind of describe what a non-communicating uterus is? So it means that you can have a uterus and a fallopian tube on one side that connects with the cervix to the vagina on the other side, you have a uterus and usually a fallopian tube. Sometimes the uterus actually has endometrial tissue in it and actually functions. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. And so sometimes patients can have pain if there's a blockage there, if they have blood and it can't get out. Um, I actually have a patient who conceived in that horn, which was um, kind of a challenge. And it's it, it's hard to believe that that can actually happen. But if you have an open tube on the other side, sperm can swim to that other side and potentially a patient can get pregnant on that side. So it's really important for the, your doctor to know um, if you happen to have that kind of unique uh, version of a uterine anomaly. Yeah, these are, whenever you have some of these unicornuate, bicornuate, non-communicating, communicating horns, um, you have to keep a really high suspicion. Whenever you have a positive pregnancy test, knowing the difference between a if something is not going right between a pregnancy of unknown location, a miscarriage, and ectopic. And so these tend to be pregnancies that we watch very carefully, do a ton of extra visits and extra lab checks just to make sure that we know when it does show up, where it is going to show up, because we want to make sure that if something's going to happen that should not happen, that we are there on the early side of it, not on the late side of it. And one last thing I would add too is when I do these kind of surgeries, I usually tell patients that, you know, I'm going to try and get rid of two thirds to three fourths of the septum, but there's no place at which it says stop cutting on the dotted line here. You know, the, the mm -hmm. idea is we want to open up the uterine cavity, but we don't want to cut through the top of the uterus. And surgically, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly where to stop. And so, you know, down the road, if somebody does some, some sort of procedure to look at your uterus after the fact, you definitely want to make sure there's not scar tissue in there. But I always say your uterus is not going to exactly be perfect. So they're always probably going to know that, you know, your uterus wasn't exactly perfect on the inside. But the idea is you just want to get the majority of the cavity opened up. Um, you know, Dan. You want to get the majority opened up during that. Yeah, for sure. So... All right. Well, I always love having the nerdy conversations with you ladies. It's so much fun. <laughs> So thank you everyone to turning, uh, tuning in and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes, leave us a message. We would love to hear from you all. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit questions that you have about infertility. All questions are answered on the podcast anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back, ask anything you like. 
All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.